Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I program the talk section of the New York Film Festival with my colleague, Madeline Whittle. Today's event is a really special event. Uh, it's one of our Film Comment live panels at the festival, a subsection of the NYFF talks where we gather together filmmakers and critics and other thinkers to sort of connect the films in the program to broader issues in the film world and film culture. Uh, issues that we think uh, need a critical perspective. And today is a really special um, uh, example of an, uh, a Film Comment Live talk. So first of all, I'd like to say that today's talk is a collaboration with the journal World Records, which is edited by Jason Fox, who will be joining us on the panel. This came about because World Records has uh, just launched an audio series called Trust Issues, which explores the idea of how... Nonfiction images build relationships with viewers and how they can bring us together and also alienate us from each other. And Jason and I did a panel at the Camden Film Festival recently with uh, the filmmaker Ramel Ross and Melissa Thando Bongela, digging into some um, some of these issues. And so we're really excited to do sort of a sequel to that here. And the filmmakers we have on today's panel, titled Trust Issues, just like the World Records audio series, uh, are incredible practitioners of all kinds of cinematic techniques. Um, all three of them have dabbled with both fiction and nonfiction by this point in their careers. And they use these techniques really intelligently to both invite us in and sometimes push us out so that we can think politically and critically about the images that we see on screen. So... Let me introduce today's filmmakers. First of all, I'm going to bring on stage Rosine Bakum, the director of Mambar Pierrette. <laughs> Next, I'm going to invite Kleber Mendonça Filio, the director of Pictures of Ghosts. Please put your hands together for Frederick Wiseman, director of Menus Plagiarism Les Tragois. I did my best with that French title. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> Please welcome Jason Fox, editor of World Records. And Clinton Crute, my co-editor at Film Comment. Thank you all so much for joining us. We're very excited to bring you all together. They've all watched each other's movies. They've done a lot of homework, and we can't wait to see uh, what you have to say. But before we dig into some of these questions, I want to invite Jason to talk a little bit about uh, the audio series that he has produced and kind of the ideas behind it, which are the framework for today's discussion. 
Um, great. Thanks, Devika. Thanks, Clint, for organizing this. Thanks for everybody at Lincoln Center uh, who makes this festival and makes this event possible. And thanks for coming on a really sunny day um, in New York, where you could have been a lot of different places, but you chose to be here. Um, so thank you. My name is Jason. I'm the editor of a journal called World Records. Um, we're sort of in the process this fall of rolling out a five-episode uh, audio series titled Trust Issues, as Devika mentioned. Just quickly say the, the first episode that we released a few weeks ago, um, broadly speaking, sort of dealt, deals with um, the racialized boundaries between fiction and nonfiction. We often treat, especially in maybe festival contexts, um, these um, these these labels as, as categories, discrete categories that maybe exist outside of, you know, uh, time, space, and politics. Um, but oftentimes what gets to count as one or the other has a lot to do with um, uh, the color of the skin of people behind the cameras and in front of the cameras. Um, the second episode that we released just this a uh, few days ago was titled My Truth, Your Truth, Our Truth. Um, and broadly speaking, um, um, and features um, the, the filmmaker, author, and activist Astra Taylor, the artist John Acumfra, and the filmmaker Charlie Shackleton. And broadly speaking, sort of thinking about the roles of images um, in building new forms of consensus and organizing and how difficult it is to uh, let go of maybe old forms of consensus and to build new ones. So the sort of just before, I mean, just before... We came out in our in our very brief conversation about what we might talk about. I mean, really, what we um, think, what we agree. I don't know where this panel will go, but but what we agreed on is that we wouldn't fall into what you know what I hope for 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 all of us are tired conversations of is this thing is this thing documentary or is this thing fiction is this thing truthful or is this thing you know ostensibly a lie. Um, um, and, uh, I agree that I would sort of just say a little bit about what for me the stakes of, are of using a term like trust. Um, for me, you know, I'm somebody like I would in a, in a venue like this and on a panel like this, um, this is where I actually saw, uh, neighboring sounds, I don't know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago. in one of these two cinemas, which was, um, you know, a really remarkable experience for me. I, in, a, in a context like this, I want to say I'm a cinephile, um, but I'm, I'm not really. Like, I like cinema. I watch a lot of cinema, but I don't identify as a cinephile. I come to this work through a background in, in, in organizing, wanting to be part of movements um, and activism. And, and thus, I'm interested in sort of frameworks that give us as much agency as, as possible. Um, and, you know, so oftentimes, context, uh, in contexts in which we talk about documentary, we sort of, we come to speak about truth as, like, as an essence or as a category, as a thing that's out there that we're all beholden to, as opposed to, you know, the notion of trust, um, which opens up a much broader set of questions about the terms that we create for each other. Other, like why we trust each other, why we don't trust each other, how we relate to each other in the room, why you would choose, I mean, maybe you didn't choose to listen to me or any of us, but right, why we can start thinking about how, you know, how we're all situated in this, in this room right now, how we come together, how we are alienated from each other, um, which is the spirit of the series more broadly. Maybe that's all, that's all that I'll, I'll say about it, you know, for now so that I can let other people, other people speak. Well, uh, kind of 
to immediately contradict what you just said. I think our first, <laughs> our first, yeah, yeah, the best, the best way to start. Um, our first question really to start things off is, uh, for Fred and Rosine, um, why documentary or why nonfiction as a, as a means of communication for Rosine? I know your, your new film is not nonfiction, but previously you've worked in that mode. So maybe you could both talk a little bit about what about the nonfiction mode appeals to you in terms of communicating with an audience. And also what it means to you. I mean, what, what is nonfiction to you? What does that involve? Sorry for my English. <laughs> I, um, I, I discovered uh, nonfiction really lately. Um, my desire of cinema really um, began by fiction. I really watch uh, American films, French films, and it's how my desire of cinema uh, was built. And uh, I discovered nonfiction when I came in Belgium to study cinema because I was used to see reportage in, on the TV. And for me, it was not the cinema that I wanted to do. And uh, when I discovered Nonfiction, I discover also the history of nonfiction, how it's built some ideology like uh, colonialism and how it's also built an imaginary of Africa and African people. And, uh, and for me, it was a revelation that I have to start with nonfiction because it gave me the freedom to build my own gaze and my own relationship with people without having an intermediate. I can take a camera and really be in direct contact with people that I want to film. And, um, and because also I, I want that intimacy that nonfiction can, can give to a filmmaker. And, um, and because I was in need of deconstructing and finding my gaze, because like I said before, I came to cinema by seeing uh, American film and French film, but it was open me to the world, but not connected me to my, my culture, to my reality. I, how can I think and impact my reality if I'm, I'm not seeing it? And, uh, and nonfiction was really uh, an evidence for me because it was the tools that built the imaginary that I wanted to deconstruct. It was the tool that uh, some colonization used to build um, the, uh, the ideology to go in Africa and colonize people. And I, for me, it was a tool also of deconstruction, nonfiction, yeah. Fred? Well, I mean, I, I sort of stumbled into what I do. Um, I, I, uh, I started a long time ago. And uh, uh, I didn't really think I had a choice. Uh, uh, I, I thought most of the fiction movies I, I saw were terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, and it, uh, you know, I, I had the obvious thought that um, everyday experience contained things that were funnier. Uh, uh, sadder, 
tr more tragic than uh, m m most of what, at least what I had seen in, in traditional movies. Uh, and I started at a time when the, the technological development, namely you could shoot sync sound in 16 millimeter without a cable linking the camera and the tape recorder. That had been, somebody had figured that out in the late 50s and I, I started making documentaries uh, in 66. And it's just, that sort of opened up the world. Uh, you can make a movie about anything where there's available light. And I just thought that there was so much going on in common experience that it would be interesting to uh, try and record it. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I made, the first movie I made was about a prison for the criminally insane. And then while I was doing that, I had the idea for an institutional series, which provided a framework. Uh, the institution provided the framework for the film. And after a prison for the criminally insane, it seems to me the logical thing to do was a high school. And, uh, 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 and then I just been sort of somewhat systematically or in a half-assed way going at it since then. Uh, without, you know, without really, never feeling that I'd made a choice, it, uh, except I, I, it's very hard to make what I traditionally call fiction films because you need so much money. And making documentaries is obviously requires less money. And for me, it was more fun. I mean, it's a sport, and you have a good time, and you you think you learn a lot, and you have a lot of strange experiences. You know, what could be better? <laughs> and Clever, uh, this is your first nonfiction film, is that correct? First nonfiction feature? Uh, I actually made my first feature is a is a documentary. It's okay, called, what, uh, it's called Critical. Yeah, it's about oh, that's right. film critics and filmmakers. Oh yes, <laughs> the famous film about film critics. That's right. Um, but between these two, I mean, you've made um, several wonderful feature uh, fiction features, um, and you often use the tropes of genre cinema to tell these stories. But they always are about real things. I mean, you really have a kind of gaze on. Uh, political realities, whether it's colonialism, whether it's the way that cities change, which is a big part of pictures of ghosts as well. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about, for you, the potential, the political potential of fiction and especially of genre, which is like, you know, this kind of very artificial, very self-evidently, proudly artificial form of fiction? Yeah, there is... Um I find that there is uh, an exciting, for me anyway, uh, chemistry between super realism and uh, and the fantastique and something that is uh, outside the, the notion of realism. Um, I grew up watching, uh, I, I, I also grew up, I think like everyone in this room, grew up watching uh, American films. Um, and the ones I, I really liked when I was in my early teens, they seem to make these. It's they they seem to have an interesting mix of uh, the fantastique and 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 some kind of realism, uh, something that I don't really see very often these days with big commercial films. 
you see something like an American werewolf in London, by a film by John Landis. It's about two guys who go to England, and England is it's very recognizable as England in 1981. The houses, the cars, the streets, but it's a werewolf uh, film. So I think that got me started in a way, just to name one film. But I also should point out that I, I grew up in a, in a country, in a society, uh, Brazil, which was coming out of um, uh, a military dictatorship which began in the 1960s. And uh, I grew up in, a, in, in this country which had uh, one television network which ruled them all. It was uh, all-powerful and uh, it defined speech patterns and fashion and, and the way people behaved. And, and of course, it had its own very specific uh, political view on the country. It shaped the way people, uh, most people, millions of people behaved. So to do a film or a documentary outside that thinking would be seen as an act of petulance. And um, things have changed a little bit, I think. But as I grew up, uh, the, the, the power that uh, global television had uh, on everyone, including uh, uh, you know, filmmakers, was, was huge. And, uh, and I think uh, coming from the Northeast, which is far from the Southeast, where all the media, powerful media in Brazil is located, uh, it also put me in a, in a situation of, of being a little freer in terms of looking at, uh, at the country. So Brazilian cinema came from ultra-realism, and then the new, a new generation of filmmakers, they, they, ha they are more intimate with uh, notions of genre. So when you mix those two things, uh, you might end up with something that is interesting. You're still being truthful, but in a very kind of crazy, um, be beautifully crazy way, which I think is what happens when you see a great genre film. You know, a photographer that really like got me into this world and sort of demonstrated for me a way of thinking is um, the photographer and, and art critic uh, Alan Sekula, who you know some of you may know, or his often often time collaborator and contemporary uh, Martha Rossler. But I think you know often of the his uh, and their critique of you know the 1967 MoMA New Documents show, which was sort of this announcing to the world the, the photography of Diane Arbus and um, Gary Winogrand and and Friedlander, and Sekula wrote about the show. In the context, not of you know, um, his frustration with the show is not that this work of documentary photography was now going into the museum that it shouldn't be art; it should be in a, it should be in whatever social justice organized spaces. It's that to become legible and to, and to start to have financial value in the art world, it had to sort of shed its um, relationships to. Um, to the world outside it. We had to learn how to talk about that work in terms of aesthetics um, as opposed to in terms of its connections to movement. And for Sekula, he's like, this is happening at a time when 
you know, American landscape is fundamentally transforming. It's moving from an industrial com economy to a post-industrial economy. Photography has so much work to do in, you know, um, in social movements. And yet we see it sort of um, coming into the museum through a different set of, set of you know, um, set of values. And so all that to say is to ask the question strictly of images, whether they're true or not, whether they're accurate to lived experience, is to miss the broader context and how they circulate and what they want, what the images want from us, or what the context in which we watch those images want from us, which can change from a film festival to a community organization screening to street, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not to put up value judgment on one and the other, but to say that the meanings and what things want from us change where, you know, wherever wherever they follow us. Um, that's such an interesting point, and I, I kind of want to go off of that maybe to Fred. Um, I guess this I'm interested in this point that Jason raised about what happens when you start looking at images of the world from an aesthetic lens. And so, Fred, when you're making movies, is is like beauty ever does beauty feel in conflict ever with the reality of what you're capturing? I mean, are you? thinking about how to make things look pretty on screen, um, how to make it, you know, appealing to a viewer in aesthetic terms. And does that ever feel like it's contradicting some kind of uh, obligation to capture things in a raw or direct way? You're suggesting things that are raw can't be beautiful? No, but I, I wonder if, if sometimes the, uh, the impulse to make things beautiful can sand away things that are not beautiful but need to be looked at and are part of the world. Uh, honestly, I, I, I don't understand the question because if you, you, you know, it seems to me the choices between good and bad photography mm. uh, uh, and... Uh, and, and if you're interested in photography, you want to make it as aesthetic, at least I do, uh, want it to be as, as aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing as possible. And I have no idea what that means, except that it's a subjective judgment. Um, I want to use the technique to create something that I think is uh, uh, pleasing. Uh, and... I, you know, I, 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 I've never thought of, I mean, I, I wouldn't know how, maybe you can give me an example of something that's raw, that's also aesthetically pleasing. That is also I, aesthetically pleasing? Yeah, I mean, be, I mean, I don't know what raw means. If raw means tough or hard or, uh, to raw, I mean, raw in, to me, means something that is not very well shot. <laughs> so it's that would be a bad, a bad, an example of bad filmmaking. Not very well shot, right? Sorry, I, I'm all, <clears throat> I'm a bit deaf because an orangutan damaged my hearing. An orangutan. No, I mean in terms. So maybe instead of like pretty and ugly we think about it in terms of good and bad so if something is if it's bad if it's poorly shot um what is good what is good i mean other than well shot 
does it communicate something? Is it more efficient in the way that it communicates an idea or, a, or an understanding of the world, an analysis of the world? And then also like thinking about what Jason was saying about works of art kind of having tendrils that go out into the world in, in different contexts and then having those tendrils be kind of like foreclosed or drawn back in in other contexts, in like institutional screenings or museums. Um, all three of your films are about the way that images interact with the world actively. So, I mean, is that a, is that a, um, is that a necessary feature of a good I, I don't, film? Of course, I mean, you know, you're taking pictures of people. Of course it's going to be an interaction with the world. What else would it be? Unless you're making movies about animals. Poorly lit and ugly. And so, like, what what makes it good? Beats me. It's what I like. I mean, (laughs) that's a fine answer. That's reasonable. Maybe uh, I I could take this question to Rosine a little bit because. this is your kind of first experiment with a fictional framework. So the film looks very different from your previous films, which are often like, which have been shot with this like direct relationship with the subjects. Um, and here you have a narrative structure, you know, there's a little bit of, even though you're uh, working with people from your life who are not actors for the most part, um, it, it follows the contours of a fictional narrative. Um, and even the, your compositions are very different from how they are in documentary, right? Like in your documentaries, you make it very clear that you're behind the camera. And here, you know, it's everything is shot and blocked kind of in a more traditional way, these wide compositions. Um, can you talk a little bit about why this mode felt essential this time in telling the story of your cousin Pierrette and her life? And like what you think the techniques of fiction added, but also maybe took away? I really, um, the documentary really helped me to, to, to find the fiction that I wanted to do because the fiction that I learned in, in the school of cinema was uh, a Western uh, fiction and uh, um, it was not my reality and it not, was not also adapt to to capture my reality and the the documentary really helped me to to find how um to to do the fiction that I wanted to do and uh, you know in Cameroon the the art is really in the life of people and uh, and there is already a mise en scène there is already uh, the cinema in the way that people live in the in the rituals in the in the the way of working and uh, the documentary helped me to see that because I have to deconstruct also uh, all I learned to find uh, the way that I wanted to to do the fiction and to answer your question that way of I, I wanted to film uh, uh, Pierrette in the rhythm of her life, and she really helped me to to find that rhythm. I, I didn't know, knew it before uh, coming. I have an idea, but she really helped me to find the rhythm of her life. And I think that uh, even if uh, the cadrage is really fictional, 
but the rhythm of the film is not fictional. It's really the rhythm of the way that she really work, lives, and act in the in, in the real life. And I think that using the fiction here was just a way of um, of pointing the, what was invisible in her life because what is what is in the film it is the reality but the fiction helped me to go and point the invisibility that i wanted to to show up like yeah. uh, like what things did you think would would be invisible without the fictional the framework? political aspect of, of the film was mm -hmm. not it was the consequences of what Pierret experienced in her daily life, but it was not quite visible. Mm -hmm. And the fiction helped me to go and point it to, to show the invisible in in her reality. Yeah. And clever for you know, one thing that I found really fascinating about your film um, is how the lines between your real memories and your memories of movies are blurred just because you use so much of your own life and spaces in, in making your films. And, you know, there's a remarkable moment where you have a photo and you see there's a ghost in the photo. And, you know, it's this, you really are almost mistrusting sometimes your, uh, your own memories because they've become so uh, enmeshed with the ways in which you filmed and the spaces in which you grew up. And can you talk a little bit about what making this film, you know, made you realize about what we invest in movies? Like, what do we invest in in cinematic images and how how they function as this this kind of uh, form of myth-making almost? Yeah, I, one of the uh, interviews I gave during the Brazilian release, the film is out in cinemas now in Brazil, and this, this uh, interview, he managed to get out of me... Uh, an interesting thought, which is going to the cinema in downtown Recife and leaving the screening as the door, the side door opens. And once you step outside onto the pavement, the sidewalk, and then you can, you can still, you can see that it is still uh, sunshine and it's, uh, the, the sun is about to go down and you get all the noises from the city and the, uh, there's a middle ground in that area where you're still in the film and, and you're going back to the city, you're going back to life. And, I, and that's one thing that I found when I was looking at the footage shots in, 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 in the place where my family used to live for 40 years. Because it was just a normal apartment, but uh, I, I shot so many little films there from so many different angles and on VHS and Umatic and Betacam, High 8 and Super 8 and 35 millimeter, that the place, the place was a place of cinema, whatever that means, but it was also the place where I lived my life. It was just a normal kitchen, but it was a kitchen uh, reprocessed by, by different lenses and all kinds of different equipment. So, it's almost like you can step inside film and then you can step out of the film and just go back to living your normal life. And I think that's a fascinating uh, um, thought about these things that we do, which are films. Because films are, at some point they become an entity. When, when somebody is, is talking about your film, you realize that it has gone on to become something else. 
it's not only the film that you have made. It may start with your friends when, when you show a rough cut to your friends. That's when the film begins. But then when it's out on release, it becomes a different uh, organism, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Stepping in and out is, is really interesting for a film like this. Yeah. Roland Barth has an essay called Leaving the Movie Theater, and he says his favorite part of going to the movies is the moment where you step out. And suddenly, the, now the movie is in your head. It's not what you saw. It's in your head. And it's also on the sidewalk. And it's also on your, like, trip home. And I really did. I felt like I was vicariously experiencing how movies had, over the years, lived in your head while watching pictures of ghosts. As You know, even though I've seen your movies and there's little excerpts from, from them, but how they've, like, lived and grown and, um, and kind of inhabited the other parts of your life you know, since since you've made them and shared them with the world. Yeah, I'd just like to go back a little bit to what you said about beautiful or raw images. Mm -hmm. I, uh, the, a lot of this film is made up of low-grade, low-quality, low-resolution, badly shot uh, images. And, uh, and I really th shot by myself 30 years ago, 33 years ago on VHS. And I really think that Time passed, and time did something to those images, and and hopefully they they mean something new once they are edited together, and 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 they I find them beautiful actually now, even considering that many other shots were shot with the Alexa, almost 4K and 35 millimeter color, and uh, but there is something beautiful about the way they uh, they tell me about myself as a person you know well yeah i mean I, and maybe to rephrase the question i i was posing to fred um there is a way in which people often associate amateurish style lo-fi cinematography with the real i mean it's a little bit because people shoot on the street with their phone like with a you know handheld camera and so i mean for fred in your films i think you have, for instance, the film that you have in the festival, um, it's so, your films are always very beautifully shot. I mean, they don't rely on these kind of tricks to get across a sense of reality, you know? There's no kind of this excessive shakiness of the camera or, you know, these other things, like the ways in which reality has become an effect now that filmmakers deploy. Um, and yet you manage to keep us, like, with these people for so long. I mean, this film, we stay in this restaurant and with the people behind the restaurant for four hours, uh, and you contrive the sense of, you know, beautiful rhythm that makes us feel like we're really intimate, like we're really getting to know them. And so what are the techniques for you that you feel bring viewers in and keep them with the image and with the world that you're capturing? Thinking. Say more. <laughs> no, well, well, I mean, 50% of what's involved in these movies has nothing to do with film. And I think it's true of any movie. I mean, when I look at the rushes, for example, I mean, I, mean, I, I have to hope briefly describe the editing process. For instance, for Menu Plays Year, I had 150 hours of rushes. So 
I have to decide what I'm going to use. And I have no idea of the point of view or the themes or the structure in advance. So I have to obviously look at the material. So it takes me about six weeks to look at the 150 hours. Then I set aside about 50% of the material. But when I'm looking at a sequence, I have to delude myself into thinking that I understand what's going on in the sequence. Because if I don't understand what's going on in the sequence, I can't decide I, I, whether or not I want to use it. One, whether or not I want to use it. Two, how I'm going to reduce it from the length it is in the rushes, which is frequently 10 or 15 times longer than what you see in the final film. And three, where uh, I'm going to place it in the structure of the film. So it, 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 it has to be, uh, uh, it, it's an, I have to try and think my way through the material, which obviously has nothing to do with filmmaking, but it has to do with an, an effort to analyze the behavior the acts, the gestures, the choice of words, the movements that I see in the sequence. Um, and uh, now, I, which is not to say I'm right about it, but I have to have a theory. I have to be able to explain to myself in words what's going on in the sequence and why I'm arranging the chosen sequences in the order that I select. Um, and uh, that's uh, and by the by the time the editing is over, even if I thought of a cut in the shower or I dreamt the cut or thought of it walking along the street, I have to be able to rationalize. I, you know, editing is really a conversation with yourself, and depends how much you find talking to yourself interesting. Uh, uh, but I, I feel that I, at the end, I have to provide myself with a verbal rationale as to why each, why I've selected each shot, its duration, and why it's placed in the particular section of the film mm. uh, that you see it in. Even 150 hours of rushes would only give you a selective tale about this place, right? And then you reduce it to four hours. Are you worried about misrepresenting anyone on, or anything? Or I mean, for example, there's a, just one example, there's a scene where uh, the, the head chef is kind of explaining to, to a younger chef that he's made a mistake in draining the blood from these brains. Right. Um, and kind of walking, it's it's a really beautiful kind of sequence, actually, because then they consult these books and, and you get to understand all the intricacies of this. But, you know, that has a narrative. I mean, there is a kind of a cause and effect and, and, and characters. Are you worried about ever misrepresenting people or reducing them through the act of editing or putting these films together? Well, you know, worrying doesn't do me much good. I just have to do the. Uh, I just have to do the best I can with the material I have, and as long as I feel that I'm not faking it mm. uh, or it's not phony, I use it. And what what is how how do you know it's not phony? 
Well, like everything else, it's a subjective judgment. I mean, if I think people are acting, I think it's, in my experience, mm. it's very rare that people act for the camera. Mm. I mean, different people have different views about that. And I say that because most people aren't good enough actors to suddenly change their behavior because they're being filmed. And if they do change their behavior, it's very evident. Mm. Uh, and But being a filmmaker is no different than... Uh, you, you have to, being a filmmaker, you have to make the same judgments that anybody that deals with a lot of people all the time, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a salesman, mm. uh, whatever, you have to have a good bullshit meter uh, <laughs> uh, in, in order to survive. Uh, and similarly, in making these movies, if I think somebody's putting it on for the camera, I stop. But in my judgment, it's extremely rare. Mm. And when it does happen, it's very evident. New title for this panel, Bullshit Meter. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a technical term that not everybody <laughs> would understand. Can I jump in and say something and ask something um, of, of the filmmakers? I mean, I'd mentioned, I mentioned a little while ago, John and Comfra and, and one of the, the episodes, and you know, one of the things he's talking about is um, the logic behind the making of uh, Black Audio Film Collective's Hand, Handsworth songs um, from 1986-87, which I'm guessing many of you have seen. And if you have or if you haven't, one of the things that Handsworth song features is a lot of archival imagery from the 40s and 50s, capturing what's often referred to as the Windrush generation, um, um, you know, immigrants um, coming from um, uh, formerly, you know, formerly former British colonies to the UK, named the Windrush generation after the first boat from Jamaica um, in like '46, bringing um, um, a wave of people over. And what he talks about is trying to use that footage whenever that footage is marshaled and at, at least you know, up until the '80s in British popular consciousness. Um, it's to say that the only thing you, and this is, I'm quoting John Nakamfra, the only thing you can say about black people is that they came off these boats. Um, and he says that in that, he talks about in the film Hansworth song, wanting to insist that this footage is important, that this footage is, um, evidence of a particular, you know, of a particular people's history. And yet the work of, I mean, the work the work of the artist, the work of editing is to make, in, in his sort of very memorable phrase, to make that footage speak other versions of personhood, in quotes. So to, to take, to say this footage is sort of saturated by the narratives that surround it, and then to make them do something different, make them work on, on different terms. And I, I, I mentioned that to sort of ask, you know, um, um, I mean, Racine, you know, you're talking about this, this, sort of colonially saturated field of vision in which you came into nonfiction and, and fiction. Um, you know, certainly Kleber, you're, you're working, you're switching, uh, you're moving between fiction and nonfiction, between pushing the limits of genre and then working within sort of, you know, lack of a better phrase, personal nonfiction. I'm interested to ask you about this sort of the, the the stretch, like the flexibility in the ways of working, where and how you find sort of more constraints, more freedom, more or less 
agency um, and maybe what those, you know, what some of those, those stakes are for you in, 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 in your films? For me, what is um, saturated for me is the power in the cinema because I know how that power was used against people like me. And um, when I saw a film, I can be hurt by the use of that power. And um, and for me, it was really challenging because that power, it is, um, I don't know how to say it in English, ignorant to cinema. And uh, you cannot do the cinema without ignoring that power. It is exists, the cinema is like that. And uh, for me, coming in Africa and knowing how that power was used, I was really questioning myself, how would I handle it by filming other? How could I find my way without, how can I use that power? And, uh, and, and for me, I use that power by what is excited for me in the experience of making a film is to really discover how I will use that power because I have to let go my role of filmmaking and really connecting with my reality and find a way of collaborating with people that I film because I know that it's only them will bring me in the way that I can use that power by sharing them with, uh, with them. And... Um, and it's also in in the the using how to to build the trust or to 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 also construct that that trust also with people and with and i because i as african when i saw a film in africa i'm a little bit finding the name of who would who do that image and uh and because I want to to links to to make a links between the image and the people, the, the person that who film. And uh, for me, it's really challenging because, but also exciting because uh, I I I have an idea of film. I I imagine it, things of how I want to do that, but I also drop it because I know that is a power to imaginate a reality that you are not used to, is a power to to already have an idea. But when I'm confronting, I'm in front of that reality, I have to drop to really connecting and catch the the way of of people, the way of uh, the way of how people behaving, I have to drop my imagination. To dropping my imagination is dropping my power. Dropping my imagination is finding the way of building and constructing that that trust. It's what is really challenging for me when I'm making a film. It's how can I find um, the way of sharing that power that exists in the cinema, yeah. For Clever, just to kind of go off of what Jason and Rosine said, 
you know, we've been talking about trust, but I also want to talk about distrust and its role in filmmaking. You know, it's it can be very powerful also for a filmmaker to say to the viewer in a film, don't trust everything you're seeing here, right? That's powerful politically too. Like when we have images of the global South or of black and brown people, one of the ways in which images produced by colonialism have been treated are they, they, they this is what these people are. There's nothing outside of what's present present in these images of Africa. And something that filmmakers like you are often doing are saying, what you're seeing is just a small part of the life of Pierrette in Cameroon. Just because you see this film doesn't mean now you know everything that needs to be known about Cameroon. And Clubber, I found it so lovely in your film, especially at the end. I won't spoil it because some people may not have seen your film, but there is a beautiful ending where you affirm cinema's capacity, like the power of being tricked by cinema, you know, like letting yourself be tricked and willingly knowing that cinema can trick you and like kind of finding enjoyment in that. So can you talk a little bit about why that was important um, in your film and just what is that the power of distrust for you? Yeah, I when I make a film, I usually feel very much free to do whatever I want. Uh, well, of course, you have the budget uh, um, constraints. But other than that, I feel very much uh, at ease uh, when I develop a script and set out to make a film. And Hosin was talking about power and, and it made me think about one aspect of this Pictures of Ghosts film, this film, Pictures of Ghosts, which is the sequence with, where I talk about a, a house, which is the neighbor's house. And I spent 40 years of my life looking at that house from, that, from those angles, from, from our windows. I never once in my life went inside that house. I was never invited to go inside that house. We never really had a relationship with the neighbors, except I would see them every day, uh, watering the garden and taking care of the swimming pool. And, and of course, the many dogs they had. And, and one of them is in the film. Um, so at some point I began to ask myself if it would be fair for me to show that house and to discuss what happened to us because of that house, because that house gave us physical problems. It was part of our Termites lives. Termites or some... Termites and noise from the dog right. and uh, all kind of, uh, you know, trees uh, which were not um, pruned, is that the, the word? so many little physical problems of everyday life, very little small-scale dramas, which I think are uh, maybe interesting in literature and in cinema, depending on how you frame it. So I was really thinking about the house and the people in it and whether I should use it in the film. And I decided to use it because, after all, it is part of my life, and I think it's fair. And every shot, picture, color picture, uh, black and white picture, VHS, 35, every shot made for, uh, of the house is, comes, fr comes from our windows. We, I, never, I never shot inside the house. Um, so that becomes a, a decision that, uh, that you make because uh, cinema is quite powerful. And, uh, and once you show the film, 
the house becomes an entity, it becomes something else. But it is still a house which belongs to a family. And, um, and in the end, I'm happy that I use the house because I think it's fair. It's fair the way I treated them. But it could have, it could have gone a way that... It could have been mean-spirited in a way, and I don't think it is. But I treated them. I treated them with respect, and this is something that I that I um, that I did think about. Um, now, of course, um, I mean, what what was the other part of the? Um, just wondering about in many times in your film, but especially toward the end, you affirm the power of cinema to trick us, and. I just found that very interesting, especially at the end of this documentary portrait of what was in your neighborhood and in Recife. Um, so I'm just curious about why you felt it was important to kind of remind us that cinema is an art of fakery and that you can get pleasure while still knowing that it's, yeah, it, I, it, it's tricking you. I think it says a lot about my own relationship to that area of the city, the downtown area, which is, is real, but it's full of poetry and literature and films have been shot there. And, and it had all the best uh, cinemas in, in the city. And, and that's how I grew up. Look, and the carnival, of course, is quite uh, special and magical. And so I think it makes complete sense to end the film like that, although it comes as a big surprise to many people. Many people actually think it's a documentary section of the film. I actually believe it was shot like fiction. It looks like fiction. It sounds like fiction. I mean, there's shot reverse shot in a way that yeah. feels, you know, in that a car makes me too, think right? of fiction. Yeah. So you have like a camera outside the window. Yeah, from... but it's very classically shot, yeah. almost like American... I think I thought it was sequence. I thought it was documentary at first, so I'm, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm just a, <laughs> It means I I'm failed. These. Yeah, but no, it, no, no, at first, and then you, then you tricked me, which is a tricked. good thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's a sequence that I like, and uh, and it seems to get a good reactions. Yeah. But also, you know, I was thinking about how you often use movies to show realities that have not happened but should. Like I'm thinking of Bakurao you know, your like revisionist history or a revisionist future as well. So there's a way in which you're using things that are familiar to viewers to kind of draw them in. And then that mix of reality and genre means that you're, sta you're saying like, this is possible. The things we don't think are possible are possible. Yeah, but breaking expectations is something that I, I enjoy as a cinephile. I enjoy when a film or a book gives me what I was not really expecting when it goes in a in a different way and and a film like Bakura of course is a genre exercise it's 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 a western and it's also a kind of um um kind of like an action a strange action uh, film but it breaks expectations in terms of the roles that people play in the film and it seems to use uh, a certain history, uh, Western, uh, Western world, uh, the history of wars and uh, conflicts, and and then uh, it it kind of breaks expectations. And it came very naturally when when we were writing the script. And maybe it's the same logic with the uh, pictures of ghosts. Um, I, I had kind of a 
really straightforward technical question for Fred about the editing process. Do you ever cut from different scenes from like across the timeline, kind of take something, a, a cutaway of the brains, for example, and put, move it into a different sequence? Or, or do you have, um, are you kind of chronological or only cutting no, within? Uh, a sin- no, well, I mean, in the, in the menu plays here, there are lots of shots of uh, individual pots. Right. Uh, uh, and I don't know. They're just, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and whatever's in them. But, uh, no, well, for instance, I, I don't intercut uh, brains and kidneys. They don't, they don't look the same. Uh, 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 I think I'm thinking more in terms of like a the whole sequ- like a whole sequence being moved from lunch to dinner or cutting in, you know that well, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, it, it was it was complicated in the editing because uh, the, the there were a lot of windows in the kitchen, and so and also it was spring, so the days were long. Uh, so I I I was. I had to be careful about the light from one shot to another. Uh, and uh, I, I tried to be very conscious of that. But uh, you know, nothing takes place in the order in which it was shot, except within a sequence. I don't, I don't change the order within a sequence. But the film could begin with a sequence shot on the last day and end with a sequence shot on the first day. I don't feel any obligation to respect uh, time in the sense of the order in which the sequence was shot, although I respect it internally. Uh, uh, But, I mean, the, the overall goal is to create a movie which is, is a fiction because the form is completely different than the form in which uh, the material was collected. Uh, and uh, it's not a document where you, you know, sort of keep going from one sequence to another. Uh, uh, there's an attempt to uh, impose uh, a structure which uh, provides, uh, helps provide some meaning to the overall experience. I'm curious how you you build trust with the people you're filming. I mean, is that, um, are you able to just go in and start filming or do there need to be conversations to to make people feel comfortable with the presence of a camera? Well, it it depends on the film. For Menu Plaisir, all the staff knew in advance and they gave their permission in advance. So each day we shot in the kitchen, I didn't have to ask them. For the dining room, I, I made a point of getting permission from all the people that came there to eat because I was sure that they were all rich or by, you know, they could afford a meal there in any case. Uh, and they had good lawyers. Uh, uh, um, but also, the Tuagro family knew a lot of the customers because they were repeat customers. And they often asked permission on my behalf and introduced me. But nobody refused. But uh, Mary Pierre, who, uh, who is the wife of Michel Troigold, uh, uh, told me that 
she, she was concerned uh, that uh, somebody might be photographed who didn't want to be photographed or didn't want to be photographed with the person that they were with. And she said that she could always tell when a man came with his mistress uh, because he, always, he treated her so nicely. Trust issues. <laughs> and Rosine, I'm curious the, how this question applies to you as well. Um, since you cast so many non-actors and people that you know are just part of your and Pierrette's life, did you have to have, you know, what kind of conversations did you have? Were there people who said, I don't want to be in a movie or he, who didn't want to show parts of their lives uh, to a camera? Uh, for for Pierrette experience, it's my family. and But I I uh, did a, a film, Chez Jolie Coiffure, where I was were dealing with many people in the head. Uh, I don't know how to say it. Hair salon? Uh, yes, yeah. hair salon. And uh, there was many people. And like uh, Frédéric said, it's what Sabine who was asking for the two people if I can film or not. But... Uh, in my experience of filmmaking, I always film people who are not, who who are, who not don't know nothing about uh, cinema and about the power in the cinema and how that power can be used against them, and uh, and I used to 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 also to in the sense of building the trust. It is important for me to find the way where I'm in the same level with that, those people. In my family, it's mostly easy because they trust me, they know me, and they can do anything for me. And uh, and how can I bring my mother to understand how what I'm doing in her own language? It's also for me a, also a challenge to find as a filmmaker, to find a common language with people that I film. And also putting them in the place where they can feel that they are participating on the making of the film. And uh, yes, it's, it's, it's all, always of breaking my position. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not... I'm, we are finding it with my mother. I'm, I'm her, her child doing something that uh, she loved. And yeah, and I, I find in that position with other, for example, uh, my film, Delphine Prayers, it was a friend. And uh, she, she, she even asked me in the beginning of the film, I don't want you as the filmmaker. I want you to be the friend that you used to be. And it's make me remind that I have to lose that power of being a filmmaker in front of those people that I film because they are feeling that power and they cannot be them if they feel that power. My mother can, cannot be my mother that I want to film if I'm in the position of filmmaking. And I have... Always, I'm always in that position of deconstructing what is being a filmmaker and to find a position that will relate directly to people that I find. Yeah. And to just kind of close it out, Clever, just going off of these questions, also, 
how was it different for you to make a film about yourself and your life and the people in your life? I mean, you know, a lot of people in your life show up in the footage and what kind of maybe, you know, did it all feel very easy But or were there reservations about putting certain aspects of your life up there? I mean, you talked about this negotiation with the house, but were there other conversations you had to have with the people in your life about the footage? Sometimes I think I'm fighting an uphill battle because I, I don't think the film is, is about myself, but uh, that's, I think a number of people um, see the film as being uh, autobiographical and, and I see where the question comes it's from. An, it's an entryway. Yeah. You, it's not no, about you, but your life I is understand. an entryway. Yeah, yeah. But what, what got me uh, in, to make the film was really the, my relationship to these spaces, to mm -hmm. these places. Um, so I really think it's about the, the apartment where we lived and what my mother did to the apartment as life developed and, and the, the city and how the city changes. And, and I happen to be the one showing you this. And, and of course, it has a very personal uh, tone, a very personal... Um, point of view I think which is I'm fine with that you know I, and, and, but in, in, in it, it doesn't really change uh, I don't feel it's a film different from Neighboring Sounds or, or Aquarius or my short films or Bacurau because these were all very personal films and I have never uh, made a film for hire nothing wrong with that but I, it, it's just that I, it hasn't happened and uh, and this film is is personal because a lot of the the ideas come from observations that I make made about life and how life has evolved, developed. Um, but yes, but to answer your question, um, it is. I think I find it tougher. I think to make a film like this than to make uh, because when you make fiction, you might use aspects of your life, and you can thinly disguise these aspects. So, uh, with a film like this, many of the aspects they are real. And for example, I showed the film to my brother, and uh, he had a a very shocked reaction. He never thought that I that I was making this film and that I would be so open about our mother. Uh, we lost our mother very early. She was 54. And, and that was a very beautiful and tough screening to show it to my brother, you know. And then he, it took him a week to process the film. And then, and then he, he said, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. But it, it's tough, and, and, and you got to think about the effect that it might have on people you love. Because uh, um, when Hossein says about uh, taking away the power of, of being a filmmaker, it, it's ironic because I see so many filmmakers who want to exert that power. <laughs> um, and, and they want to use that power to get the film made, and they will hurt people. And I've seen that happen. And, uh, and that is something that I bear in mind. You know. What does that mean to use their power to get a film made? 
Give, give uh, an example of that. Well, uh, you you might use uh, your past relationship or relationship friends uh, from the past, and you're not friends anymore. And you will use uh, pictures of those people, and they are not really. Uh, well, you're not talking about money. Are you talking no, about use not, of material? No, use of uh, the the you, decisions that you're people. able to to make as a filmmaker, and you have to take in, into consideration how other people feel about life, and they are going to be up on the screen, and it's a very kind of um, complex uh, situation which has to be negotiated, I think. Not negotiated in monetary terms, but no, emotionally. I, 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 I didn't know whether you were talking about raising money no. or, or uh, that aspect of power. Well, I'm, I'm strictly talking about the emotional aspect of making a film, and the people you care or you should care. Uh, simply the people that we film and uh, and the responsibility that is beyond because I, I think that there is a, a lack of integrity in the cinema today is that we are not respons responsible of it's like the cinema it is another world and we live as a filmmaker in another world and it's like what I'm showing It's not what I am, <laughs> and uh, and for me it's really dangerous because for me cinema is the life, and and I want to keep that integrity also of what I'm choosing and how I'm choosing of doing things of showing things. It's related to what we see because it's also related to to my history with the cinema and how. I have to deconstruct the rest of that power in my way of doing cinema also. And uh, and I would like to ask a question to you. <laughs> Is how, after all your experience of doing fiction film, how, what do you, why do you choose to put that, um, That phrase of all the fiction films are beautiful documentary. That's a very tough question. Uh, <clears throat> because I think that I, I have learned a lot in during my life as a cinephile uh, um, watching fiction films. And many of them felt like documentaries. And, and it's great that I'm in New York City now because... Uh, In 1987, I saw a taxi driver for the very first time on television. And it really felt like a documentary about New York City. I mean, it was a story of a guy called Travis, and he drives a car, and he goes insane. But it's very much about, I mean, the image, the image in that film, the, the sidewalks, the streets, the, the marquees, and, and yeah, the whole atmosphere that you get from watching that cinema, that film, in, in a, on, a on a little television screen, the way I saw it. It really felt like a, like a documentary. And, uh, and I find that fascinating. Um, and hopefully when somebody watches uh, my films shot in Hisifi, they will get, I mean, they can forget about the story and the narrative and they can look at the you know, the, the surroundings and, and, and the streets and the way people dress and they say, well, this is this looks right, you know, it's probably it, it probably is like this, you know. So that's why I think I, I use that um 
that moment in the film and and that's my voice i dubbed i dubbed the 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 footage from the film which i found he doesn't say that in the film and i, I that's my own voice dubbing uh, that sentence when i when i saw that i stopped <laughs> and go and read all um your biography and 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 i was saying that it's a really powerful gesture of dropping the power As it's a, great to hear that yeah that's i think that might be a nice note to end on <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much rosine clever fred jason The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.